Good morning. Ask you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Thankful for the student choir that leads us. Any of you know about a couple hundred of our ladies are at our women's retreat this morning, so we need to continue to pray for them. And like myself, I'm just glad I'm here without my wife helping me get ready. Glad a lot of our students are as well. And you dads who made it here without your wife, man, I'm proud of you. Like a brotherhood. And so uh, I appreciate, appreciate all of you being here. We want to continue to pray for them as they close out their time together. This morning I'm going to be preaching, continuing in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And just to go ahead and let you know, I will be going through Acts chapter 7, the entirety of it, verse 60. Okay, I waited, I paused to see if I could hear any gasps. Uh, we did seven verses last week. That took me 35 minutes. So now we're going to do 70, and we'll see how it goes, okay? But my intention here is to look at this passage as we've seen this escalation in the book of Acts of antagonism toward the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, Peter and John proclaimed Jesus. They were arrested and threatened. In chapter 5, the apostles proclaimed Jesus. They were arrested and beaten. And now we get to chapter 6 and chapter 7. A turning point, really, in the early life of the church is this passage. In fact, we find this passage very important, I think, in the book of Acts. This sermon of Stephen is, is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. In fact, it's two times longer than any other sermon which tells us why, why Luke is putting it here has a, a significant purpose, a significant reason. And this time will be keep, keep being referred back to as Stephen, one who had been chosen here to serve uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is going to be confronted for his beliefs. And we find his response, I believe, here to, be, uh, to that confrontation to be incredibly important. And because it's so important, I want us to read it together. So I'm going to read this entire passage together. And, and so starting in verse 8, we'll read through chapter 6 and on through chapter 7. To read this passage, as I said, this important passage, if you have your Bibles, just follow along with me. I think it'll be on the screen as well. Luke writing, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him, blasphemous, heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers in their, on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph made, made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in the words and deeds. When, his, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Then Moses, who they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out 
performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Repham, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth that you have given us. And so now I pray that you would mold us and shape us according to your word and to this truth. And as we look to Stephen, God, may we be directed as a people, to stand firm with great courage in the face of great difficulty. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 tells us of this Stephen who we've already been introduced to. The one we saw earlier in our passage that was chosen to help serve tables. This Stephen that it tells us was full of spirit and wisdom, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and now... It tells us in verse 8 that he's full of grace and power. We'll come back to what those mean, but it tells us ultimately that this Stephen is like the apostles. 
His preaching and his teaching is now being accompanied with signs and wonders. He's, he's speaking boldly. He's claiming truth. He's, his ministry is continuing to grow. And in this ministry, this caught the eye of members of a particular synagogue, it tells us. The synagogue of the freedmen. This, these were Jews from the diaspora. I use that term. I want to explain what that means. Back in the Old Testament, because of the sinfulness of the people, God sent Babylon to come in and conquer Jerusalem and conquer Israel, and he took them all away into captivity. And what we learn is that a remnant of them came back, but many of them were spread all throughout the empire and even sold into slavery and other things. And so what it seems to be is that these were a group of those who were a part of that, who had been spread out all over the empire. It mentions Africa, it mentions Cilicia, it mentions Asia, all over the place. And they had earned their freedom from slavery, and now they've come back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they gathered together as Hellenists. We talked about what that meant last week as Hellenists, Jews who had grown up in another place, speak a different language, kind of have a different culture, but still hold to the Jewish traditions. And those Hellenists were looked at with side eyes by those Hebrews, as we saw again in our previous section. Even in the church, they're looked at side eyes with them. And so, so they're a little bit of attention. And so these freedmen had gathered together in this synagogue to learn the law, to learn the truth, to be taught those things. And most likely this was one synagogue that was there. And maybe they had heard Stephen. Surely they have. I mean, obviously they had not only heard him. Maybe, I, I believe Stephen probably showed up at the synagogue at some point. This would be a method of others later, like Paul, who would go to the synagogue to begin to teach whenever he would go into a city. And surely Stephen had gone there. Stephen being a Hellenist himself, a, a Greek name of Stephen has, and, and how he came in and, and one who could go in and speak to them, maybe in their language, in their culture, and try to get them to understand the truth. And so Stephen maybe has been attending their synagogues. And, and while he does, they hear what Stephen's preaching and they are rejecting it. But their problem is they can't refute Stephen. They've tried. They rose up to dispute with him. Verse 10 tells us they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so these in the synagogue, they couldn't do it on their own. Uh, Stephen was too wise. He knew the scriptures too well. And what he was saying, they could not refute. They could not show it's, it's being false. And so they raise up some false witnesses against them. Now, let's understand just for a second, what the difference is between a synagogue and a temple. A synagogue was a place, not the temple, not where worship was done in the form of sacrifices and others. It was a place for Jews in that area to gather together to learn about the law, to learn about their traditions. They would come in to study the, the Torah and the scriptures. They would study those things. So a synagogue was where they would gather together to study it. The temple, however, was quite different. It was the center of all of Israel's worship. There was only one temple. There were synagogues in many places, but there was only one temple, and that temple was in Jerusalem. That's where the high priest was. That's where the Day of Atonement was celebrated. That's where sacrifices were brought. The temple was the center of all of the, the religious life of Israel. That's why it's so important. And for Israel, they believed that the temple was where God's presence was. That's where God dwelt with his people. And so the temple, the temple equaled the presence of God. And so here, as Stephen begins to teach, he's teaching something different than this. The men couldn't refute him, so they, they had to trump up some charges against him all the more. 
They, they built up these false witnesses and they come to the high priest at the temple. And when they bring these witnesses, they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. When he says against this holy place, he's talking about the temple. He never speaks, ceases to speak words against the temple. Surely the high priest will be upset about that. That's where, that's where he did his work. That's where he was. And so he never ceases to speak against this. And he even said, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change our customs. That's what Stephen preaches. These men from the synagogue had been away from the temple and now they've come back and they wanted to protect these traditions. They did not want to be associated with Stephen. They didn't want the high priest to think that this man coming in and teaching us, we don't believe in this. They didn't want to be associated with him. They didn't want to be cast out. They didn't want to be separated. So the issue then, as the charges are brought forward, the issue is the temple. And by that, the issue is the presence of God. That becomes the arguing point. And the irony here is that they wanted Stephen to be silent, but they're going to give him an opportunity for the most important sermon of his life. They wanted him to shut up, they didn't want him to speak, but they're gonna give him a chance to step up and have an opportunity to defend his beliefs for the most important sermon of his life. And as he stood up, it tells us there in verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That means Stephen's face changed and it was a little chubby-cheeked little kid. Just seeing if y'all are paying attention, y'all know how angels look, right? Precious moments and other things like that. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that Stephen is standing in the face of this trial, in the face of this charge, in the face of these false allegations, and he's standing there fearless. He's standing there faithful. He's standing there full of grace and full of power. He is determined. As Ecclesiastes 8.1 says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, his wisdom is what they can't overcome. So Stephen is here in the face of these challenges, in the face of this moment, and he's not scared. He's not stepping back. He knows he's on trial. He knows what he believes on trial, but he's not in fear at this moment. He's standing up there resolute and resolved. Here's my opportunity. I don't care what they say about me. I don't care what they put me. I don't care what charges they trump up against me. Here's my opportunity. I get the chance to proclaim this testimony. He's resolute, face like an angel, fearless as he steps up and his wisdom is shining forth. And the high priest makes the big mistake when he looks at Stephen, he says, are these things so? And just like all of us who at the drop of an instant and a moment should be ready to give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Stephen is ready. He's been waiting on this to be asked of him. Are these things so? And if the argument at this point was that God can only be found in the temple. God's presence is only in the temple. That's what the argument is. Stephen, his goal is to prove that wrong. In order to do that, he goes through the history of Israel. He begins to, to reel off how God was present with Abraham back in Mesopotamia. How Abraham, God came to him and Abraham worshiped God there. And how God was present with Joseph when he was in Egypt. And how God was present with Moses while he was in Egypt as well. How God was present with Moses while he was at that burning bush that was not consumed. He spoke to him. He came to him. He was present there. 
how God was present at, with Moses at Mount Sinai and all of Israel. They saw his presence come down. And God even says, I come down with fire and lightning and thunder so that they will see it is me speaking. God's presence was with his people there. This is the point of Stephen's whole message. God's presence was there. It was with Joshua as they dispossessed the land. It was with Joshua all the way through David. God was present with his people. But it wasn't until Solomon, David's son, that the temple was built. In other words, God's presence was there with his people before the temple was even constructed. That's Stephen's whole point of his message. God has always been present with his people. God has always been present with them. He doesn't leave them. He's not far from them. In fact, the moment he calls them, he's with them. The moment he calls them, he's there dwelling with them. And Stephen is making this point forward. You think God is confined to this temple? Stephen wants to prove this in two points to the people. Verse 48 of chapter 7 is the first one. He says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Stephen's point here is that God does not dwell in houses that we make. As if we could build some building or build some structure and then tell God, get in there. Stay right there. His presence is not confined to that. God is always present with his people. His presence is transcendent above and beyond. He was with them in Egypt. He was with them in the wilderness. He was with them in the conquest of the promised land. From the moment he calls his people, he is with his people. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. He is always there. He is not confined to this building, he says. I'm, I'm, I'm interested here as he tells us at the end of chapter 7 that one of them that was around this stoning was Saul. They laid the garments at his feet. Saul, of course, would come face to face with Jesus in chapter 9, and he would become the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, I'm sure, learned this lesson, even from Stephen at this point. Whenever it became time for Paul to make his stand, whenever he was challenged by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the Areopagus in Athens, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul learned that very lesson even from Stephen. God is not living or dwelling in any building that we possess. He's not in any temple that you set up. And we can even say that here in our own life. God is not confined to this space at this moment in this time. God is not confined even to the altar that is right here. You don't have to go here to find God. He is at your very fingertips. All you have to do is call upon him. So Stephen's refuting the idea that you have to go to a place to find God. Look throughout the history of Israel. He's always been present. Even before the temple was built, he was there. He was there. But then that leads to the second point. The second point he wants to make is you have always rejected the prophets of God that have told you this. The prophets have come and they've told you this over and over again and you've constantly rejected them. In fact, not only have you rejected them, you killed them. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before him the coming of the righteous one. Not only did you not, did you not listen to what they were saying, you, you even killed them. Throughout the history, they had turned away from God and from his messages. They rejected Moses when he came back to Egypt. They built a golden calf in the wilderness. They worshiped idols. They killed the prophets. They crucified ultimately and finally the righteous one, he says. 
God has constantly told you that he is with you, that all you have to do is call upon him and depend upon him. And everybody that's come to tell you that you have rejected them and turned away. In fact, it even tells us up here in chapter seven there, verse 42, that you turned away and you've been worshiping idols, not the one true and living God. You've been bowing down to others, not the one true and living God. And now Stephen's point is, the one who Moses told you about, the one who David said was coming, the one who the prophet said was here, was, was be here, even John the Baptist, the one he said was coming after you, you killed all of them that came and told you this. And not only that, you've killed the righteous one himself. This is exactly the message that Peter gave in chapter three, chapter four, when he was called. This is exactly the message that was given in chapter five that enraged the people again when Peter says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as Lord and Savior. This is the same message we've been proclaiming and Stephen's saying, Stephen's saying the presence of God is not confined to a place. We've been telling you that. The prophets have been telling you that from day one. The presence of God is not confined to a place. It's found in the one who will come. It's found in the one who will come. And what's happening now is you're rejecting me just like you rejected others. God was with Stephen even at this moment. In fact, it tells us, and really the thing that put him over the top, it tells us when they had heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And notice what Stephen says that really puts him over the top. It wasn't just that he called them stiff-necked people. It wasn't just that he called them uncircumcised of the heart. It wasn't just that. Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Just to prove his whole argument, God is not confined to that temple. He is in heaven standing on his behalf at the right hand. He's there. But as we've seen throughout the beginning of this book, there's always someone who's seeking to stop the gospel from going forward. We've talked about the last two weeks how this is Satan's desire to stop the gospel, not to let it go, not to let it continue. But in every way, God's gospel keeps going and it keeps continuing. He tried by threats. He tried by beating. He tried even in chapter six by raising up quarrels amongst themselves. He's tried every which way he can. And now he's enraged to the point. He was enraged before in chapter five, but Gamaliel stepped in and said, hey, hold up. Let's talk about this. Now they're enraged to the point that they cannot listen to it anymore. And their anger boils over and they stick their fingers in their ears and they scream out loud because they cannot take it. Why can they not take it this way? Why do they react like that? It's only because they cannot refute the truth of what Stephen is. They just reject it outright. Stephen cannot be refuted. They can't go against this and say something different. So instead of trying to refute it because it's too much, they just stick their fingers in their ears and they say, la, 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 la. And then they come and they take him out and they stone him. But what we see as Stephen here will be referred to several times in the book of Acts as this important moment in the life of the church. Because what you think may happen is when they stone Stephen and everybody just shuts up, okay, now they're serious. But in fact, what we'll find out in chapter eight is that the gospel goes farther than ever before because of what happens with Stephen. 
In fact, it's referred back to, remember when Stephen, remember when, when it happened to Stephen and the gospel advanced? We'll see here in our very next section how the gospel goes to even Samaria. It's gonna go into places even farther away because of what happens to Stephen. You can't stop the gospel. And Stephen is a great example of this. So the gospel will advance in the face of great difficulty. What, how, and what can we learn then from Stephen? What can we learn from him as we look to this? First, we learned that he was full of grace and power. If you, if you look back, I mentioned this earlier, there's three uh, kind of claims here in chapter six. They were looking for men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom in verse three. And then they speak specifically about Stephen, man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse eight, he's a man full of grace and power. All three of these things are mentioned about Stephen. And in fact, I think this is important because this is similar phrasing and I think it's pointing to the same thing. It's pointing back here to chapter seven whenever it says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. It says that down in verse 55. He was full of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? To be full of the Holy Spirit means to be full of wisdom. Wisdom from God's word on display with Stephen. To be full of the Holy Spirit means to be full of faith as it says here. To be full of faith, trusting in God. To be full of the Holy Spirit means to be full of grace. We know we receive the good news of Christ through grace and therefore it will go out from us through grace in the proclamation of the word. But also to be full of the Spirit means to be full of power. All of these things mentioned here in their descriptors of Stephen, wisdom, faith, grace, power, all of these are on display in Stephen. All of these are on display with him. His wisdom as he understands the truth of God's word. His faith as he steps up in the faith of great, a face of great difficulty to stand firm knowing what he believes and trusting in that. His grace, even as they are stoning him, he says, Lord, don't hold this against them. His power and boldness in the face of all of this great difficulty, all of it are on display there. But not only that, we see what Jesus said coming true. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, going back to that passage, it tells us as Jesus is sending out his disciples, he says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. This is the passage coming to life right here. Jesus is telling him in Luke 12, 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, exactly where Stephen is, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Here, what we see with Stephen is we see someone full of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is he has wisdom, he has faith, he has power, he has grace, and he knows what to say because the Spirit gives him the words. This passage teaches us, I think, what it means to be absolutely dependent upon the Spirit. Stephen steps up with confidence because he knows he has a spirit dwelling within him. He steps up with confidence because he knows he has wisdom that God has given him to speak truth in this situation. He has the faith. He has grace. He has power. And just as Paul learned the lesson about God does not live in temples made with hands, Paul learned the lesson here as well, I think, with Timothy. When he tells Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy I mean, excuse me, Stephen has all of that on display in our passage. What that learns, teaches us is this, that if you're a child of God, then God has told us that you're a child of God and the spirit of God dwells within you. 
The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has brought you back to life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same spirit that dwelt in Stephen that allowed him to face great difficulty, trial, and struggle full of wisdom and faith and grace and power is the same spirit that dwells in each and every one of us. You see, the spirit dwells within us, so we have a spirit not of fear, but of power. Not of, not of fear, but of love and, and self-control that when we face life, we know that God dwells within us. He's not left us. He is with us. His presence is here. And so we proclaim his good news. If we have that spirit within us, then we have everything that we need. We are fully equipped to speak the truth, to live a life of holiness pursuing after him to know what to say when we're called upon, he says. That's why Stephen stands there with a face like an angel. His confidence is on display. The Spirit of God dwelling in him, he's full of the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit, so he's ready to proclaim what is given to him, just as the Lord said he would. If you have the Spirit dwelling in you, you have that same thing. You should have that same confidence, but that confidence must bleed out into the second thing we see from Stephen. Stephen has courage in the face of persecution. Everything Stephen says is true. That's what I said earlier. That's why they cover their ears and they run, right? And now it's important for us to know this because I truly have never had this happen. I've never preached. Now, some of y'all probably have put your fingers in your ears figuratively and kind of blah, 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 blah but I've never preached only to have people put their fingers in the ears and scream and run out. And what, why, why do I say that? I say that because sometimes our tendency is to back up from the hard truths. Our tendency is to kind of ease into those things and not really say it outright, just kind of back up from it. Our tendency is to speak so that y'all will come back next week. That becomes our great desire. To preach in such a way that I don't offend someone or, or to preach in such a way that I don't, I don't upset you. And Stephen surely could have done that. Stephen could have come and said, I know this is tough for you guys. I know it's hard and, and I'm sorry and I'm gonna do it this way. And let me just tell you. But instead he goes, you're a stiff-necked bunch of people. It's, it's happened right before your eyes. What they needed to hear was the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've rejected it and rejected it and rejected Don't reject it anymore. Don't stop it. Don't reject it anymore because your time will be up soon. And there's no other message because this is the righteous one who has come for you. Courage in the face of this persecution and moment is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of earthly consequences. To say and do the right thing regardless of earthly consequences. And what you need to know, and I'm sure you're already aware, if you're a child of God and you believe the word, then we're becoming stranger and stranger in our own context and time, aren't we? To stand firm on the truth is going to take courage for us as believers. To stand firm about what we believe about marriage between a man and a woman. To stand firm about what we believe about life. To stand firm against what the culture and society is saying. We're going to have to stand firm on these truths based upon God's word. And that, my friends, is going to take courage. And courage is all the fruit of the Spirit on display for everybody to see. Not hiding it under a bushel. Not hiding it in some place so they can't see it. But letting our light shine so that the world may know Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior. And his word has all authority. 
Courage takes that. In the face of a world that doesn't want to hear it and sticks their fingers in their ears and la, 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 la. Courage takes this. We must have the same courage that Stephen has to stand up and proclaim the truth. Stephen's courage is met, by the way. As one person says, courage is believing that God can do it. And courage is expecting him to do it. But there's a third part. Courage is trusting God if he doesn't do it. Believing he can do it, expecting him to do it, but trusting him even if he doesn't do it. I love the story in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've preached this sermon three times and I pronounce their names perfectly right each time. They were told to bow down to the gods of the country they were in. Bow down to the king and worship him. And these three young people said, we will not bow down. And because of that, they had to face the consequence of being thrown into the fiery furnace. And I love it because here they are, these young people standing up with courage. And what do they say? They stand up with courage and they say, we will not bow down to your gods. And our God will deliver us from this furnace. But you know what they say next? But even if he doesn't, I will still worship him. Even if he don't, I will stay true to him. Because courage is an understanding that God knows what's best for us and he will always do what's best for us. Courage is an understanding of knowing that his truth reigns forever. And what do we see here in Acts? We see that when Stephen steps up and he proclaims it, God did not leave him. Jesus did not forsake him. He was there waiting on him. And I love what it says. When he says, Lord, don't hold the sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And not only that, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you die yet, you shall live. Stephen said, even if he doesn't deliver me from this, I will proclaim his name. And it gives us a glimpse of how the Lord receives his people, his children who are faithful. Who are faithful. Third and finally, full of the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit, proclaiming the word in courage. We see finally the Stephen's message is a Christ-centered, Jesus-centered message. At the end of chapter five, after they've been threatened and beaten, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, or Christ is Jesus. The message of the apostles, the message of the early church, the message of our church is Jesus Christ. That's the message. We don't get on any side tangents. We don't move into any political things. We simply proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and what that means for every day in our life. We let people know that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus and Jesus only. In fact, the whole Bible from start to finish is one big book about how God has saved us through his son, Jesus Christ. How we had lost and turned away, but God has redeemed us through Christ Jesus. And when I preach, when we proclaim this, when we step into this pulpit, what we are offering to you is a huge, big Jesus sandwich, right? 
Because what sustains you when they're standing before you on trial and persecution, what will sustain you is not that you ate a good breakfast that morning, but that you have feasted on the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and no one can take him off his throne. What sustains you is Jesus. What keeps you is Jesus. What welcomes you home is Jesus. And so what we proclaim is Jesus. There's nothing else left for us to proclaim. He is everything. He's not the ticket to get into the party. He's the party itself. It's Christ. And so what we offer is Christ. And here Stephen says, that's it. Y'all have missed it. They've been telling you it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. They've been telling you if you missed it, it's still him. Even though you killed him, he's now alive. You put him to death, I see him on the throne. It's Jesus. God's presence is not found in a building. The presence of God is found in a person. That's the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we find him. Stephen, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, with great courage in the face of trial, proclaims Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I pray that's the testimony of each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Father, help us in this moment to trust you completely and entirely with our lives knowing that you will never leave us and forsake us. Your presence is with us through the power of your spirit. God, help us. God, I, I pray that you would give us great courage. I pray that you would strengthen every believer in here for the task that is before him. I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts for the moment in time that we are called upon to proclaim your name. I pray this, Father, all by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. If you're here today and you need a little courage, I pray that the Lord will give it to you. If you need someone to pray with, we'd love to talk to you about opportunities for you to share your faith and the courage you need in that. We would love to talk to you about it. But if you're here today and figuratively your whole life, you've been sticking your fingers in your ears saying, la, 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 la. Today's the day that you open your ears and your heart and you hear the message of Jesus Christ that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will bring you safely home. He is life and salvation. We'll be standing here at the front. If today's the day you need to make that decision, we'll be here ready to receive you. All for the glory of Christ's name. Let's we'll stand together.